It is an honor to have the opportunity to stand here and open up God's Word to you this morning. One of the hymns that's been running through my head all this last week is the hymn, Brethren, we have, met, we have, met, we have met to worship. Look at it, right? And the first verse says, Brethren, we have met to worship and to adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the Word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray in holy manna will be showered all around. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have given it to us and that it is Your Word, that it is true. Father, we thank You for Your Spirit who takes Your Word and gives us understanding and takes Your Word and applies it to our hearts. We pray this morning that as we open up the Scriptures, that Your Spirit would give us understanding, that He would give me clarity of speech, clarity of mind. Father, that I would be faithful to teach Your Word accurately. Thank You for Your faithfulness to to us, Father. Bless this time in Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year I make a trip to the doctor's office, the annual physical. This visit is different than any other visit that I may have made during the course of the year. This time, the doctor is not going to treat a particular ailment that I might have, but he's going to assess my overall health. If there's a problem, hopefully the doctor is going to pick up on those warning signs and alert him that there's something in my body that needs particular attention. I think most of us would agree that a regular physical assessment or a regular physical exam is important. So I'd like to start this morning by asking you the question, do we give the same priority to a regular assessment of our spiritual health? Why a yearly physical exam is beneficial for the few years that we have on earth, a spiritual health assessment ultimately has an eternal impact. How then can you do an assessment of your spiritual health? Well, just like when I go to the doctor, he not only pokes and prods and listens and gazes and all the other stuff that doctors do, but he'll ask me questions. He'll ask me questions regarding my physical life. And as a doctor asks us questions, we need to ask ourselves questions relating to our spiritual life. And I think the broadest and perhaps the most important question that we should ask ourselves is this. Is there solid evidence of sanctification in my life? Spiritual growth ultimately is sanctification, that is, an ongoing separation from our natural love of sin and its domination over our lives to a growing love and domination of holiness or Christ-likeness. If a person is truly joined to Christ by faith, if, if one has been justified, then sanctification will be the inevitable result. The progress is going to be uneven. There are going to be fits and starts, and it's going to go like this and like this. There's going to be a graph that has very jagged edges. But there will be a pattern of growth evident. 
J.C. Ryle was a pastor back in the 19th century. And he wrote a book called Holiness, in which he said, and I quote, The faith which has not a sanctifying influence on the character is no better than the faith of devils, referring to James 2. It is a dead faith because it is alone. It is not the gift of God. In short, where there is no sanctification of life, there is no real faith in Christ. Ryle goes on to say that sanctification of life, the ongoing separation from sin to holiness, is the only sure mark of God's election or salvation. And it's not surprising then to hear the writer of the Hebrews urging believers in chapter 12, verse 14, to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. This morning I hope to give you some tools from Scripture by which you can engage in a personal spiritual health assessment. Before we look at our passage in 1 Thessalonians, let me begin by asking two questions. Number one, have you recently considered your spiritual condition, your level of spiritual health, the degree to which you are becoming more like Christ? Second, and connected to that, Do you truly know anything of true salvation with its outcome of genuine, practical Christian holiness? Or are you trying to satisfy your conscience with a mere outward form of religion and thus are ignoring your need of genuine conversion? To help us answer these questions, we're going to examine Paul's opening words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me give you just a little bit of quick background. Paul wrote this letter after his very brief visit to the city of Thessalonica. He came to Thessalonica after being compelled to leave Philippi because of opposition to the gospel. You remember the story, how they got the most luxurious accommodations in Philippi. Uh, No, it was a jailer. It was a jail. The uh, Philippi Hilton, I like to call it. They preached the gospel and saw both Jews and Greeks come to Christ in Thessalonica. But just as happened in Philippi, the message of the gospel was quickly and forcefully opposed, and Paul and his companions were run out of town. And the missionary, the missionary group, Paul and his companions, did not have the opportunity to do all that they wanted to establish this new church, this new group of believers in Thessalonica. And the Apostle Paul was very concerned about them, particularly in view of the persecution that they were facing. So Paul, not being able to go back to Thessalonica himself, sent Timothy back to check on them and to bring a report back to him as to how they were doing. This letter, 1 Thessalonians, is Paul's response back to the Thessalonian believers after Timothy returned to him and gave the report. As we look at the second verse of the first chapter, we can see here in a very, very quick summary the substance of Timothy's report to Paul. Paul writes, after his greeting in verse 1, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in, my, in our prayers. By the way, I'm using the New American Standard Version this morning. When you read that verse, you can almost hear an audible sigh of relief, coupled, of course, with rejoicing. 
when Paul writes, we give thanks to God. Paul is thankful to God because Timothy brought back good news concerning the spiritual condition of these new believers. I think we can be thankful this morning, especially as we use this, this passage for our purposes, that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle didn't just stop at giving thanks, but he tells the Thessalonians why he is thankful. And the bottom line, folks, is that these new believers were growing spiritually. And as Paul outlines and gives to us the ways in which these people were growing spiritually, I believe that we can use these reasons as a measuring stick, or if you're in the education business, a rubric, to evaluate your own spiritual health. What prompted Paul's thanksgiving to God? The very first thing we see in verse 3, Paul recognized the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. In verse 3, he says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Paul cites three evidences of the Spirit's work in the lives of these believers. And I think as we read that verse, you immediately, three terms popped out at you. Faith, love, and hope. You're probably more familiar with them in a little different order from 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul speaks about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these being love. But if you look at verse 3, you see that each one of these terms, faith, hope, and love, is connected to a visible activity, work, labor, and steadfastness. The Apostle Paul uses a particular Greek syntactical construction here to highlight that the faith, the love, and hope are each the source, or if you will, the wellspring of each activity. So we could read verse 3 like this, constantly bearing in mind your work which is prompted or produced by faith, your labor which is motivated by love, and your steadfastness which is energized by hope. In other words, these external, visible qualities in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians were fundamentally due to the Holy Spirit working faith, love, and hope in these people. Let's look at each of these briefly. Paul gives thanks because they have a work produced by faith. Now, Paul here is very, very brief. He does not give us a whole list of specifics. He doesn't detail for us the type of work seen. But we can certainly ask the question, what kind of work does faith produce? What kind of things happen in the life of a person who has generally come to know Christ? Well, the book of James is very, very helpful in that. We won't take the time to turn there this morning, but in the first two chapters, James lists a whole bunch of things that should be evident in the lives of those who have generally come to faith in Christ. Humility. Not showing partiality. Obeying God's law. Caring for those in need. Whatever the details were in Thessalonica, Timothy brought back to Paul a report that these believers were putting their faith in Christ into action on a very, very practical level. Not only did they have a work produced or prompted by faith, but they had a labor motivated from love. The word that Paul uses for this second evidence of the Spirit's work is the Greek word kapas. It's from the noun, from the verb kapiao. I know, you're all Greek scholars, right? You put that down in your lexicon. 
But it's very interesting because that particular word means to labor or to work to the point of exhaustion. It describes a work that is selfless, a work that is sacrificial, a work that is persistent. What is the motivation for this kind of work? What prompts this kind of work? It is love. It is a love for God, first and foremost, and a love for people, secondly. Here again, Paul does not go into detail. He doesn't provide specific examples. But as we look at the context of both First and Second Thessalonians, we can see from Paul's words that this group of believers had a very, very genuine love for each other. In fact, over in chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You don't need any instruction on this at all, folks. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. And like a good preacher, Paul doesn't end there. He says, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. You're doing great. Don't stop. Their love was genuine, their love was real, their love was fervent, and it was being expressed very practically. The evidence of the Spirit's work for which Paul gave thanks was seen by a work produced by faith, a labor motivated by love, and thirdly, a steadfastness energized by hope. Living as Christians in the first century in Thessalonica, was not easy. In verse 6, in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. Things weren't easy. It wasn't easy being a Christian. And the opposition to the gospel did not quit when Paul left town. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul again says, You brethren became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Remember the, the, the struggle and the, and the persecution that the Jerusalem Christians faced. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. What kept these people going? What kept the Thessalonians going? What enabled them to remain steadfast? What enabled them to endure in the presence of opposition? It was hope. It was hope. Biblical hope, folks, is not a wish. I hope I have steak for dinner. I'm not. It's meatloaf. It's okay. My wife makes awesome meatloaf. But I'd like you to look, if you would, at the latter, part, the next part. Steadfastness of hope, notice, in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. That's where their hope was based. They had a settled confidence in the promises of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul says, As many as be the promises of God, they are yes. They are confirmed in Christ. Biblical hope, the hope that these Thessalonians had, is a confident expectation, an established confidence which has as its foundation God's promise. Steadfastness is not only exhibited when you are facing opposition because of your faith, 
Steadfastness is a trait that we can exhibit when we face the trials of life, whatever they might be. James again wrote at the beginning of his epistle that we are to count it nothing but pure joy when we unexpectedly find ourselves surrounded by trials of whatever form or intensity. Christians do not endure because they expect ease or reward in this life. Christians endure, they are steadfast because of the promises of God. James again, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, verse 12 of chapter 1, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When the Apostle Paul heard the report from Timothy and heard that the Thessalonians had a work produced by faith, a labor motivated by love, and a steadfastness energized by hope, he gave thanks to God because he recognized that the Spirit of God was at work in these people. So, as you do your personal spiritual evaluation, does your life show evidence of the Spirit's work? Do you see a work produced by faith, labor motivated by love, and steadfastness energized by hope? The Apostle Paul not only gives thanks to God because of the evidence of the Spirit's work, but also and certainly connected to it, Paul saw evidence of divine election. I'd like to read verses 4 through 10. Paul says, Knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul gives thanks to God because he was absolutely confident that God had chosen this group of people for himself. We have three reasons for this confidence. Verse 5, a powerful gospel proclamation. Paul says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God works out His electing purposes through the proclamation of the Gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, Jews seek signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, we preach Christ. We preach Christ resulting in transformed lives. When Paul and company came into Thessalonica, the Spirit of God so empowered the preaching of the Apostle Paul that he had great confidence that God was calling these people to Himself. Connected to that was that the Word came in power and in the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the source of power. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And you know, I think on a very practical level, Paul knew the difference. Remember that he was trying to go over into Phrygia and Galatia and Bithynia and the Spirit of God said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going that way. And then he saw the vision of the man from Macedonia saying, Come on, over here. Come on over here and help us. And Paul and company ascertained that the Spirit of God was calling them to that region of the country. So Paul knew what it meant to be forbidden by the Spirit to preach. He also knew to be what it was to be directed by the Spirit to preach. And Paul had the freedom to preach with power. The message came with power and in the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly in verse 5, full conviction. I don't believe this is speaking about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Thessalonians. I think it's connected to the other things in this verse. That the Spirit of God, again, gave the Apostle Paul a conviction or assurance that the message of the Gospel was finding its mark in the hearts of the hearers. This was a gift of God's grace to Paul as he preached. You say, that's pretty subjective. Yeah, it may be, but I'll tell you what. That spirit-given assurance was being confirmed in the lies of the Thessalonians. And we see that in verses 6 and following. Not only was there a powerful proclamation of the gospel, but there was a powerful response to the gospel. Notice, Paul says, You became imitators of us in the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of, of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You notice there's one thing that Paul doesn't mention. He doesn't mention their profession of faith. That's not a guarantee of salvation. The thing that Paul focuses in on is the life change that occurred because of faith in Christ. There was a powerful response to the gospel on the part of these Thessalonians in that they followed godly examples. Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Everybody's an imitator. Everybody's an imitator. The only question is, is who are you going to imitate? That's it. There are only two masters that you can serve. You've got a choice between two. And that's it. And the Thessalonians patterned their lives after the godly examples of the missionaries and ultimately of the Lord. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul admonished the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they had been called. One chapter later, in chapter 5, verse 1, he told them that they needed to be imitators of God, his beloved children. Certainly you hear the echoes of Christ's words from Matthew 16 when he said, Take up your cross and follow me if you are going to be my disciple. And I think it is noteworthy that this occurred and was occurring in the face of opposition in the presence of trials. It was not popular to follow Christ. It was not popular to live a godly life. But this is the path that they pursued. You don't hang around to get persecuted for something you don't believe. So as you do your personal 
spiritual evaluation, ask yourself the question, do I follow godly examples? Am I an imitator of the Lord Jesus? The Thessalonians' powerful response to the gospel was not only seen in that they followed godly examples, but they also became examples to other believers. Verse 7. Became an example to all the believers in, notice, two regions, Macedonia and Achaia, just not in Thessalonica. But they had a broad impact as these believers, as this group of people embraced the Word and their lives became patterned after godliness, they in turn provided an example to other believers. And certainly this was in all areas of life, but again, looking at First and Second Thessalonians, I think particularly in the area of love. As we noted earlier, Paul commends his church for their love for the brethren, not only in their assembly, but again in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, in all of Macedonia. So another question. Are you a godly example to other believers? Could someone safely pattern their life after yours? Paul saw evidence of divine election and gave thanks because there was a powerful proclamation of the gospel, a powerful response to the gospel, and lastly, a powerful proclamation to the unsaved. Verses 8 through 10. The transformation that had occurred in the lives of the Thessalonians was being declared to others. And folks, it's one thing when believers tell other believers about how someone's life has been changed by the gospel. But in the case of the Thessalonians, it was the unsaved who were spreading the word. In verse 8 it says, The word of the Lord has sounded forth. The term that Paul uses here is the, the only time this term is used in the whole New Testament. And it means to proclaim like a trumpet call or, or a thunderbolt or a thunder, uh, sound of thunder. Thessalonica was a very populous trading center located on the Ignatian Highway. And this was the main land route across northern Greece. As visitors to Thessalonica came into contact with the Thessalonian Christians, the fact of these people's faith in Christ was very evident. And I think it was perhaps as basic as being honest in their trade, a kind disposition, displaying the fruit of the Spirit, in the day-to-day business of life. What was the message? What was being said? Look at verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The message that was being declared was these folks have undergone a spiritual revolution. The Thessalonians just didn't welcome Paul and the missionaries. Oh, hi, it's nice to have you in Thessalonians. Yeah, Thessalonica. But they not only listened to them, but they embraced the word. And it transformed their lives. Not only did they hear the gospel, but they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now you know that idols have many forms. It's not just a carving. It's not just a picture. It's not just a statue. An idol is anything that usurps priority over God's rightful place. It can be sinful things and things that are not inherently sinful. Work, relationships, recreation. But for these people, serving the living and true God was the most important item on their to-do list. And it was being noticed. 
And not only was it being proclaimed that they had undergone a spiritual revolution, but verse 10, they were living in expectant hope of Christ's return. Paul says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, that is the living and true God, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They were eager to see Jesus. And like the faithful servants in the parable of Christ, they lived each day anticipating that one day they would see Him and they wanted to hear Him say, Well done. Paul gives thanks to God because it was very, very clear that these Thessalonians possessed spiritual life. And that was being demonstrated by their spiritual growth. We saw evidence of the Spirit at work in their work of faith, their labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. The Apostle Paul knew that God had chosen them for his own, not only as he recognized the Holy Spirit empowering his preaching, but also for the Thessalonians' powerful response to the Gospel. Their lives had been transformed so that they not only embraced the Gospel joyfully and followed Christ in the practice of daily life, but they became models of godliness for others to follow. And this, even though they were experiencing persecution for following Christ, to the degree that even the unsaved were telling others that these people had undergone a spiritual revolution. So as we close this morning, let's return to the questions posed at the beginning of our study. Have you recently considered your spiritual condition, your level of spiritual health, the degree to which you are becoming hopefully more like Christ. This morning, if you've been using this passage as a tool for self-evaluation, how do you assess your measure of spiritual health as you compare it to the spiritually vital lives of the Thessalonians? And secondly, do you know anything of true salvation with its outcome of genuine, practical Christian holiness or are you trying to satisfy your conscience with a mere outward form of religion and thus are ignoring your need of genuine conversion? And if you do not know anything of true salvation, there's no better time than today to pursue Christ, to seek His saving grace. Paul in 2 Corinthians wrote, Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that you have, by your spirit, not only provided it for us, but you have preserved it. You have kept it so that we, so many years after its original writing, could open up the pages and be taught by you. We thank you, Father, for the examples in Scripture, both positive and negative. We thank you for the lessons that you teach us from them. And this morning, Father, we thank you for the Thessalonians and for their lives and for the Apostle Paul pausing to give thanks to you for the work that you were doing in their lives. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us as we hear these words, as we consider these words, to take them to heart. Father, that we would not be slack in our own responsibility to spiritually evaluate our lives and that we might be honest with ourselves because we know that there is nothing hidden from your eyes. 
Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We all stumble in many ways. Lord, we do not in any way in the practice of our day-to-day lives measure up to the person of Christ. But we thank you that there is grace with you. We thank you that there is forgiveness with you. And Father, that you forgive, you restore, you give grace, you give strength, you give perseverance so that we might continue on. Be glorified, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.